Tonight in your Bibles, we would turn your attention to Psalm 131. In your pew Bible, you can find it on page 714. A word of explanation as to the selection of the text. You'll notice that we are breaking uh, temporarily from our series through the book of Micah. I've been drawn to Psalm 131. Uh, over the last uh, two weeks or so, I've used this psalm in making pastoral visits uh, to those who find themselves in the elderly years of their life. Uh, and it's just struck me, uh, not in an overly mystical way, but I've been drawn to this psalm, something of its wonderful simplicity, uh, but also uh, in pastoral experience, especially over the last year, maybe perhaps even year and a half, with some of the things that have gone on in our world that have impacted our lives, practically speaking, there's been much unrest. Unrest uh, among devout Christians, among mature Christians, there's been unrest in people's hearts, within people's minds. There's been unrest within congregations over some of the events and the circumstances uh, that face us in life, whether that was uh, the pandemic or whether that was the election cycle. And my purpose this evening certainly is not to give a commentary on either one of those situations, uh, the COVID pandemic or the most recent presidential elections, but rather to use those events uh, and come to Psalm 131. And remind us of the importance, but also of the possibility of what I've titled this evening's message, The Quiet Soul. So we turn our attention to Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Thus far our reading from the Word of God for this evening. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. An illustration by way of introduction. Many a time that you most likely have heard the following question presented to a, a new mother as she holds perhaps her infant child in her arms. And, and maybe especially, uh, you know, those older mothers, and we, we hesitate to use that word in relationship to mothers, but more mature women in the congregation or in the family will ask the new mother, well, how is the baby? Is the baby a content baby? Is the baby... Eating well? Sleeping well? A, a peaceable child? Or maybe the exasperated mother says, oh, the baby's a fussy baby. The baby's even perhaps a colicky baby. Cries without end. Up constantly all night. And maybe if you have a careful eye of observation, you can even see in the mother, and perhaps by extension in the father, uh, the, the signs of a weariness as they've dealt with this unsettled and colically little child. I only use this illustration to point out that there can be a world of difference between children. A world of difference between the content child and the colicky child. A world of difference between the sleeping and the cooing, the smiling of a pleasant child, and the crying and the fussing, perhaps even the screaming of an unsettled child. And I would use that illustration to 
ask you as I ask myself, which one would be a more apt description of our soul? If we were able to take an honest evaluation of the condition of our soul tonight, would you say that your soul is similar to a content child? Having all of its needs met? Having scarcely a thought or a worry about the morrow? Are you able to quietly rest in the providence of your Heavenly Father? Or is your soul perhaps something more akin to the colicky child? Constantly disturbed. Constantly anxious. Constantly crying out, why? When? How? What? Well, we come to this psalm. One commentator says that in this psalm, Israel is to renounce all self-boasting. And is rather to wait in lowliness and quietness upon his God now and forevermore. Israel, the church, you and I, we are encouraged, we are instructed, we are admonished by this scripture passage to renounce that is to be done once and for all with all self-boasting. And rather than self-boasting, to wait in lowliness and quietness upon its God now and forevermore. Spurgeon, that prince of preachers, says concerning this psalm, it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. This quietness, this spiritual contentment, takes a lifetime to learn. But learn it we must, for the well-being of our own spiritual condition, for the encouragement of the spiritual conditions of those around us, but ultimately for the glory of our God. And so we turn our attention to Psalm 131, considering tonight briefly the quiet soul. Noticing, first of all, the attitude of the quiet soul. Secondly, the analogy to the quiet soul. And then thirdly, the action for the quiet soul. The quiet soul, uh, the attitude, the analogy, and the action. The psalmist speaks very clearly of his soul or of his heart. Not the physical organ, boys and girls, that pumps blood throughout your circulatory system. We understand that heart, and it's also vitally important. But the psalmist speaks here of that spiritual part of the human being in which the deepest spiritual exercises reside. The spiritual center of a person. That is where the attitude of which he speaks is located. Because that is the command center of a person's being and of a person's life. It is there in the soul or in the spiritual heart that you have uh, the source of the thoughts that fill the mind and the desires uh, that flow out of the will and also the affections that are displayed by our emotions. It is there in the soul that was uniquely given to the human being by the creative act of the Almighty God. It is there in the soul that the psalmist reflects and says, my soul is not haughty. My eyes, eyes have often been referred to as the window into the soul. So that if you look at a person's eyes, you can tell something of the attitude that is in their heart. And so the Bible talks about uh, the, the proud eye or the humble eye. And many of our emotions that reside in our heart or in our soul become 
visible through our eyes. And so you can tell when someone is filled with grief and sorrow, not just by the tears that may form within their eyes, but even by the downcast and discouraged look that colors their eyes. On the other hand, you can identify someone who is filled with self-confidence and filled with a boastful pride by their haughtiness in their eyes. And that's why the psalmist says, Lord, my heart, that is my soul, is not haughty nor my eyes lofty. And so there is the soul that is experiencing the gracious transformation. Don't think for a moment that the psalmist found himself in the place in verse 1 just by nature. By nature, the psalmist, in the title that of David, by nature, he also was a fallen son of Adam. He also had what theologically we call total depravity. His heart and his soul was impacted by sinfulness. His inclinations were not set aright. Uh, He, by nature, was prone, as our Heidelberg Catechism says, to hate God and to hate his neighbor, as we all are by nature. But he had undergone a gracious transformation. And he was continuing to undergo a gracious transformation. And that is what the Christian also experiences, a gracious transformation of our very soul. Our very heart is transformed by the work of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit so that we begin to express something of the fruit of the Spirit as it is referenced in Galatians 5:22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit, that is the fruit of this gracious transformation of a person's very heart, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So there in the very inner essential part of his being, the psalmist says, my heart, my soul is not haughty. In contrast to this haughtiness, there was a humility. Now the the psalmist describes it negatively. My heart is not haughty. My eyes are not lofty. Uh, If you take that in the positive way, he's characterized by a humility of heart. A haughtiness is an overestimation of one's personal worth and personal value. A haughtiness is also an overestimation of one's knowledge and of one's wisdom and of one's ability. By contrast, humility is a proper estimation of oneself. First and foremost, in relationship to Almighty God. But then by extension, also a proper estimation of oneself in relationship to one's fellow man. And that's why the Apostle Paul gives the pointed exhortation that we all continually need to hear as we live in our interpersonal relationships. In Romans 12, verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, notice the emphasis there, to everyone who is among you, The Apostle Paul didn't want anybody in the church in Rome to think, aha, that exhortation was not for me. No, that was for the guy behind me in the pew. Or for the lady in front of me in the pew. Or for for that side of the sanctuary. Or for this side of the sanctuary. Paul says, I say to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And so I also say to myself and to every single one of you, 
do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. A haughtiness that stands in contrast to humility is a pride. And pride, congregation, is deadly. Pride is absolutely deadly for a variety of reasons. But pride is deadly in relationships and also within churches because a haughty and an arrogant, proud person refuses to receive instruction and refuses to receive correction. And so, Proverbs pointedly says in chapter 6, verse 16 and following, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. Now, I would challenge you, if you did not have this Scripture passage memorized, and if someone were to ask you, name the top six things that the Lord God hates and despises, what would your list be? Perhaps you would start with, of the horrific sin of abortion. Or perhaps you would identify uh, the sexual immorality that is so prevalent within our society. Uh, maybe you would say, well, the desecration of the Sabbath day, that's where we ought to begin. And all of these certainly are evils uh, that are overcome by the grace of God. But notice the list that is given by Proverbs 6. It starts with a proud look. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, these seven are an abomination, a proud look. Or you might say, a haughty heart. An arrogant spirit. Continues, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. I would submit to you that the final six of that list all flow out of the first. A proud look. Let us be reminded that this haughty, arrogant, over-self-estimation is a deadly sin. That's why the psalmist says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. I have experienced the transformation that comes by grace. Not only is there a humility, but there's also a contentment. And so he says, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. This contentment is the proper acceptance of one's lot in life. Now this is not a passivity. This is not a a complete disregard for our obligation and for man's responsibility. Certainly the psalmist and certainly the Scriptures understand uh, that we have our vocation, we have our calling. Whatever our hands find to do, we ought to do with a fullness of zeal and of energy. But rather what this is, is a contentment with one's sphere in life. Which includes the acceptance that some things are not revealed to us. There are the great mysteries uh, that Deuteronomy talks about. The secret things that belong to the Lord our God. And when there is a humility within one's heart, when there is a certain contentment within one's soul, one can then come before the face of God within their everyday life and say, Heavenly Father, there are things I do not understand. But I trust that You understand them. There are things that I do not know, but I trust that You know. And that's the expression of faith. And so Christian faith avoids being overly speculative into hidden matters. 
And a mature Christian faith also avoids being rigidly opinionated on neutral matters. You see, the proud person, the proud person peers with speculation into absolutely everything, thinking that they themselves can come up with the answers for all of the riddles of humanity, whether it be the global economy, whether it be the political realm, The proud person says, if only people would listen to me, I have all the answers. But the humble, sincere Christian knows that there are things that are too deep for them. There are things that God has not chosen to reveal to them. And they're content with that fact and that reality. And so this is something of the quiet soul. The person whose very center of being has and is being transformed by the gracious work of God through the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit to a condition of humility and contentment. As we transition into our second point, uh, I pass along this exhortation rightly understood, not of a complete passivity. But Christian, don't concern yourself with matters that are too great for you. It will only rob you of the quietness of your soul. And don't concern yourselves with things that are too profound for you. It will only interrupt the peace that passes all understanding. Now to drive this point home, the psalmist uses a familiar analogy that we consider in our second point. The analogy to the quiet soul. And I want to attempt to explain somewhat the analogy as you find it there in verse 2. The the Weaned child. And how the weaned child is calm and content. And then after the explanation of the analogy, uh, the identification of the truth within the analogy. Now we all understand, perhaps to some extent, what we mean when we speak of a weaned child. It is an infant child who has come to the age in which they are no longer dependent upon their mother's direct sustaining of their life with food, with milk. And especially in a context such as this within the agricultural realm, many of you are well familiar with the weaning of calves. When the appropriate time comes and they're brought in and separated from their mothers. But as you think about this, whether it be within the realm of animal husbandry or whether it be in the realm of the nursing mother, the process of weaning is not always such a quiet process. Shortly after we took up residency here in Pella, we were at one of your homes and the neighbor farmer had recently, that very day I believe if my memory serves me correct, begun weaning cattle. It was not a very quiet experience. These calves bawl and bawl for their mother. Is that what verse 2 means? Is that the weaned child? The crying and exasperation, the the longing desire for one's mother. No, it's not so much to the process of weaning, but rather to the result of being weaned. And, And there you can have a child that is no longer in the immediacy of infancy constantly clamoring for satisfaction from its mother. Now, without, of course, being too graphic, an infant child who's suddenly hit with the smallest little hunger pain 
If that child is given to the hands of their mother, that child is restless until it finds what it needs. And if a child, if an infant child is hungry before it has been weaned, that infant child can find no rest until it receives that which it desires. But a child that has been weaned to a certain measure of contentment and independency can sit calm in the arms of its mother or on the lap of its mother because it has attained a certain measure, and we link these words together, a certain measure of dependent contentment. The weaned child is still dependent on its mother but it's content. It can to some extent deal uh, with the hunger pains. It learns, at least it begins to learn, uh, by the way of maturity, that there will be a feeding time. And that those initial hunger pains will eventually be satisfied. And you see something of this in the life of David. And again, remember, if you look above uh, the the heading there of Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. And think of three times illustrative in the life of David in which he shows this contentment where there are things that are going on in his life that are far too profound to him to understand, but he rests content in the providence of his heavenly Father. The first is after he has been anointed king, and yet Saul is still on the throne And Saul begins to hunt after David. And twice David had the opportunity to take the life of Saul. But he resisted. He understood that his heavenly Father had spoken that he would sit upon the throne. He also was experiencing the the wrath of Saul. But you might say in that time David said, My heart is not haughty. I will not reach out my hand against the anointed of the Lord. I will not take matters into my own hand, but I will rather depend upon the providential provision of my heavenly Father. And so David could step back, so to speak, with this dependent contentment and allow the providence of God to play itself out in relationship to his own ascending to the throne. A second example is when Shimei came cursing and rallying against David. And David had among his mighty men, those who volunteered to go make an end of Shimei and his cursings with an act of violence. And in a arrogant, haughty person's heart, there would have been, yes, let's go in Shimei and his cursing. Let's make it so that he will never speak again. Because certainly David had the military strength. And certainly he had the military expertise to make an end of Shimei. But yet he says... Let it be. In the providence of the Lord, he was content to let the Heavenly Father deal with and how in his own time that circumstance. The third illustration of this is found also in David's own son, Absalom. Usurping the throne, plotting against David, forcing David even out of the royal city, where he has to abandon not only his own palace, but also the temple. And he writes and he expresses the sorrow of his heart, but in the sorrow of his heart, his heart was not proud. His heart was not lofty. His heart was not arrogant. Now David had learned underneath the providence of God 
to trust and to rely with contentment, understanding there were many, many things in the economy of the kingdom within the Davidic realm that he did not understand, that were far and above too deep for him. Like a weaned child with a quiet maturity and a quiet dependency. And you see, that's the truth of this analogy. The weaned soul has this quiet maturity, having grown beyond the demands of the instant satisfaction that a unweaned child has. When an unweaned child is hungry, it must be fed now. It takes no thought, no consideration for the sleeping of anyone in the house. It takes no thought and no consideration of anything within the mother. It's too immature to contemplate how its own demands will impact other persons within the household. It just simply cries out, demanding satisfaction now. And sometimes that's the way our own soul cries out. But that is not a sign of Christian maturity. That is rather a sign of Christian immaturity. The weaned child, the weaned soul, is able to some measure say, I understand that there will be a dinner time. Perhaps it's in an hour. Perhaps it's in three hours. Perhaps it's not my ideal meal. But I understand that in the household in which I am placed, there will be a time in which my dietary needs are met. This maturity is what gives this peace of soul. And you can apply this to the life of the church. The Christian member of the church may look at the church, whether it's a local manifestation of the church, or whether it's the federation of the church, or whether it's the universal aspect of the militant church, and we can say there there are many things that are not perfected yet. The immature soul says, "My, My needs need to be met now, if not yesterday. The more mature quieter, calmer soul can say, I understand that everything is not right right now. But I also understand the providential care of my Heavenly Father extends to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same could apply to the political realm. Uh, The insightful Christian sees that there are many injustices within the political realm, even within our own country, The immature child cries out, it has to be made exactly right, right now. The more mature, quiet soul can say, I don't understand why things occur the way they do in the highest courts of our land. But the quiet soul can say, but I know there is a higher court even in the high courts of our land. And that is the court of Almighty God. And in His due time, He will right every wrong. And He will reward every right. And see, that's not only the maturity, but also the dependency. And as we transition into our third point, this analogy, the truth of this analogy is summarized, I believe, most aptly within Psalm 37, verse 7 and 8. There's this exhortation, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Notice that, wait patiently. And then the psalmist goes on, Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. 
Don't allow the peace of your soul to be stolen because of the prosperity of the wicked. Whether it be in some direct personal interrelationship or whether it be on a a broader scale or even a global scene. Do not fret because of these things. Cease from anger, the psalmist continues, and forsake wrath. Do not fret. And then there is this powerful punch of an application. The psalmist says it only causes harm. I ask you the things that we have fretted about most within our soul. Did it ever bring any real benefit to our spiritual maturity? The anger that rose up within our hearts because of our fretting over the prosperity of the wicked. Did it ever benefit us anything? Do not fret. It only causes harm. In contrast to the fretting, the action in our third point for the quiet soul, it's seen there quite clearly in verse 3, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And you can wrestle with, well, what comes first? Does the quietness in my soul come first and then the hope in the Lord? Or does the hope in the Lord come first and then the quietness of the soul? And I believe the answer is both. You see, it is the quiet soul that can hope and it is the hoping soul that is quiet. These two go together. So rather than fret because of the apparent prosperity of evildoers, And instead of trying to solve all of the riddles of the world's plight, Israel is exhorted through Psalm 131 to quietly hope in the Lord. The nature of this action, hope, is to have a certain confident expectation. It's not like we say, well, I I hope something that we have absolutely no basis believing will ever come to place will take place. I mean, I might say, well, I hope for Christmas I get you know, some extravagant present, but I don't have any real confident basis upon which to make that expectation. That's not what the word here means, but hope is to have a foundation for a confident expectation. Israel, don't fret. Church, don't be filled with anxieties and fears. Don't be lost in all of these deep, profound matters that you cannot and you will not understand, that are hidden in the eternal decrees of God, but rather hope in the Lord. Now notice that that is the focal object. Hope in the Lord. Do not hope in yourself. You see, that's what the proud and the haughty and the arrogant person does. That's what the nations do. That's what the unbelieving realm does. They hope in themselves. They hope in the gradual prosperity of humanity. Whether that be economic prosperity. Whether that be the alleviation of all that ails the human nature. Don't hope in man. Don't hope in yourself. The psalmist David, he doesn't talk to himself. Now David, you're the king. Hope in your kingship. Now David, you're the one whom they sang. You killed your tens of thousands. Hope in that and your military ability. Hope in the Lord. Place all of your trust, all of your dependency upon the Lord and more specifically upon His covenantal faithfulness to His people in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to see, I need to see, we need to see in verse 3 there is a call to faith in Jesus Christ because every time 
that you read, Lord, as you find it there in verse 3, uh, with all the capitalized letters, it speaks about God coming to His covenant people saying, I am who I am and I will be who I will be and I will always be that which I am, especially unto you, my chosen people. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord in Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who has plans to prosper you. Plans to bless you. Plans that include the forgiveness of sins. The cancellation of condemnation. The satisfaction of wrath. The inheritance of an eternal habitation with the Lord our God. Hope in that. Hope in what Jesus Christ has done. And hope in the providential care of the Heavenly Father. Place all of your trust in that. And know that nothing can remove you from His hand. As I stand before you and as you sit before me, so to speak, none of us as we come to the end of this calendar year and a month or so, none of us can predict what the next calendar year will hold. Oh, I know the market analysis can make their predictions. And the political commentators can make their predictions. But all of it is filled with uncertainty. Man does not know what tomorrow holds. So our hope cannot be in that. I can't promise you that the year of our Lord 2022 will be better, however you would define that, than the year 2021. But I can promise you this. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful to every single one of His people. And His promise, His covenantal promise that includes our salvation is sure and is certain. You can think of Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8. And there's the same exhortation, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption. And He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Or you can think of Psalm 42, verse 5, because you see this theme, hope in the Lord, it runs as a chorus line all throughout the book of Psalm and all throughout really the entirety of the Scriptures. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Why are you at unrest? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. So there is a personal and also a corporate call this evening to place all of our trust, all of our hope, and all of our confidence in the person and the work of the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's also a loving pastoral warning to anyone who hears these words. If you're going to place your hope in anyone else, it will fail. Now, you might sit back and say, well, my life is good. My relationships are all strong and healthy. The last annual checkup that I had, everything looked good. The blood test came back and everything's exactly where it should be. And then after my annual doctor's visit, I went to my portfolio and I was diversified appropriately. And the returns last year were all very favorable. And the advisor said everything looks promising for the future and business is good and it's getting even better. Don't place your trust there. Be thankful for those things, certainly. But don't hope in those things. Because what will death 
due to all of that? Death will eliminate it all. O Israel, hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore, today and tomorrow, this year and next year, for time and for eternity. Hope. And you notice that when it's said this way, hope in the Lord both now and forevermore, it's to be not only an initial activity, but also a continual activity. So there is this earnest exhortation and call to an initial act of faith, but also then a continual act of faith. And so as you begin the unfolding of this week, as your Mondays become Tuesdays and lead quickly into Wednesdays, and before we know it, we come to the Friday and the Saturday, every single moment of every single day, the exhortation is in essence the same, O Israel, hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And I would submit to you that it is when we exercise that dependent faith that we experience the quietness of soul. Then everything else is put into its proper perspective. Sure, there are difficulties in life. There are the riddles of life. There are the discouragements and the disappointments. The complexities of life. But hoping in the Lord, there is then the attaining of a certain quietness that is similar to a weaned child upon the lap of his mother. So Israel, hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have such a sure and a reliable foundation for our hope. The covenant promises that are yes and amen in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do confess that many times in this life, uh, we have a similar cry to the disciples as they were tossed to and fro in the midst of the wind and the waves upon the Sea of Galilee. Master, do you not care that we are perishing? May we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that You command the storms to be ceased when You will. So give us a quietness of heart. Give us a hope within our soul. That Your name might be honored and glorified in us and through us. For Jesus' sake, Amen.